Welcome back to Core Conversations, a Core Logic podcast. I am your host, May Claire Bolton Smith, and I'm the Senior Leader of Research and Content Strategy with Core Logic. In this podcast, we'll have conversations with industry experts about key topics from housing affordability to the impact of natural disasters on property. One of the most destructive natural disasters is wildfire, where properties impacted can be completely destroyed. 2020 has been a very active wildfire season, one that started earlier than usual. So for this episode of Core Conversations, I welcome Dr. Tom Jeffrey, Chief Wildfire Scientist at CoreLogic. Tom, thank you for joining me today on Core Conversations. Hi, Mayclair. Uh, very happy to be here. And this certainly is a very timely conversation given the year we've had with wildfire. Definitely, yes. So to get us started today, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your role here at CoreLogic? Certainly. I'm a chief hazard scientist at CoreLogic. Uh, my primary responsibility is the wildfire risk modeling and analysis. As for credentials, I earned a PhD in geography, and I've been working on wildfire analysis for about 25 years now. And that's exactly why we've got you here today, Tom. So the 2020 wildfire season has been incredibly active. I live in the Bay Area in California, and the orange haze and smoky skies certainly have been memorable. So can you talk a little bit about what we've seen this year with wildfires? Absolutely. Well, there's no question 2020 really falls outside the norm for a number of locations in the Western U.S. It, just in terms of scale alone, uh, California, Colorado have seen the largest fires ever recorded in each state. And in the case of Colorado, they actually can claim to have the three largest fires in state history all burning at the same time uh, in this past year. Now, as for California, as everybody knows, it's it's the state that gets the most attention, and rightly so. It has the distinction right now of having experienced the first fire over one million acres, the August complex, and that's the first time we've seen that in the lower 48 in more than 100 years. And that's not to mention the fact that there are, this year alone in California, 4.1 million acres burned in the state. Now, that's more than double the previous high in 2018 of 1.8 million acres. Wow. So when we talk about these numbers, it's just overwhelming in some of these instances. And overall for the country, uh, not just looking at a specific state, but the country as a total, the amount of fire activity is probably not going to surpass the really, really high years of 2015, 2017, or 2018 in terms of total area burned or even property destruction. But it's certainly, we're going to see 2020 fall in the upper part of the scale by the end of the year in, in those categories. Wow. So that that's that's really interesting. And and I know last year, we really didn't see that level of wildfire activity that we did kind of some of the previous years. So why has this year once again been so bad compared to 2019? So very true. Uh, and it's one of those, it's one of those aspects of wildfire science where you look and you, you know, I think maybe people have the expectation that it's just bad and getting worse, but we do see years like 2019 where it's a down, a lower impact year, a down year in terms of fire activity. 
And when we look back at the historical record, we see years in which we have those interspersed within high wildfire seasons. So we'll have some down years, some years where it's much greater. And it just so happens 2019 was one of those years where it was just less activity. Now, I don't mean to, you know, I'm not trying to minimize the impact that 2019 had. There certainly was some damage and destruction that occurred. But putting it in context, if we look at 2019 in comparison, it had about half the amount of burned area that we saw either 2018, the year prior, or this year in 2020. And the, the difficult part, you know, is really looking to see what caused that. And there's no single source that we can rely on for, for the change or the difference over time. But if we look at some of the factors, obviously weather plays a role. Uh, you know, weather conditions are going to dictate the how vulnerable uh, the fuels are to, to ignition and to carrying a fire. Human activity has to be part of the part of part of the uh, discussion as well, simply because human activity is responsible for about 80% of the fire ignitions. So we look at that. And I think, you know, one of the things that is always coming up in discussion is climate change. And climate change can have an impact on weather patterns. It can have an impact on the intensity of the different types of weather that, uh, that are going to influence wildfire activity. And in 2019, there just wasn't that in comparison to 2020, where we had an outbreak of hundreds of fires just in California over three days, uh, when there were over 12 or almost 12,000 lightning strikes that occurred. And again, this is something that you really don't plan for or you can account for in your planning, but it's what we saw happen play out this year. And it really put a strain on the resources and it resulted in, again, a a tremendous amount of devastation and fires of the size, scope and magnitude that we really hadn't seen in the past. Yeah. And I I remember those lightning strikes. I remember waking up really early in the middle of the night and early in the morning and being confused. I'm like, what is, what is that noise? Is that thunder? And it was lightning, but there was no rain. And myself being in this business, I knew as soon as I saw lightning and knew there was no rain, that it was going to be a really bad situation. And within a couple of hours and throughout the next day, the smoke just continued. And and it's really, every time the smoke skies fill, it, it brings back memories of 2017 and 2018. Um, I know living in the Bay Area through those, those were both very devastating years. And I just remember the smell of smoke constantly. And I guess if we look back at 2017 and 2018, those were two of the most devastating years on record for California wildfires, in particular with the cities of Santa Rosa and Paradise. Can you talk a little bit about those two fires in particular and why they were so extreme? Absolutely. And you're you're exactly right. Uh, you know, smoke is something that is a consequence of the of wildfire. And it has the impact of affecting so many people even beyond where the actual threat lies in terms of the wildfire itself. So as you experienced, and as people even outside of California experienced, uh, smoke damage was extreme. And the actual effect of the smoke was so extreme that there were locations hundreds of miles away that were feeling that impact. In terms of 2017, 2018, it was almost a time period where we were looking at the occurrences in those two years as being potentially, you know, the worst we've seen up to that point. And 
as a wildfire scientist, you have to ask, you know, is it possible to go beyond that? Well, I think you always have to, ha you have to have the consideration that it's always possible to exceed what we saw. So going back to 2017 with the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa, um, at that time, at that point in time, we thought that was, you know, it was the worst we'd seen it. We thought yeah. it couldn't get much worse. And then 2018 followed up with the campfire in paradise. And we saw what uh, even a worse example of, of what an extreme fire event can do. Just and the, the two cities are only about a hundred miles apart. I mean, they're not located in, you know, in drastically different areas, but they do have different types of vegetation. They have different types of fuel mm. and, they really are two different types of fires. You know, it's, it's very interesting to take both of those in comparison because in Santa Rosa, you had a fire that moved in from the Northeast. It burned through some grass, a lot of oak, uh, some mixed in with some, some conifer uh, trees as well. But as that fire approached, it was pushed by very strong winds and it moved very quickly. Mm -hmm. And it, when it came to the edge of town, the, structures, the, the homes and, and uh, businesses on the edge of town, many of those were ignited from embers. But then the wind continued to push that fire. And because of the way the residential part of Santa Rosa was set up, especially Coffee Park, you had homes that were located very close proximity to each other. There was not a lot of spacing in between them. And the fire would rage through that area from home to home. It's, it's called an urban conflagration where you have a fire that the source of the fuel is actually the homes. And there really was very little vegetation, if any, in the city, but yet it went through block after block and just completely obliterated the homes there. Now, in contrast, if you look at the campfire, uh, you're looking at an area where it's all conifer forests surrounding the city, the community of Paradise, and the, forest, the trees themselves are scattered in and throughout. So all of the properties, virtually all of the properties in Paradise have some type of conifer on the property, maybe minimal in some cases, but there really are a dense, it's not a forest necessarily inside the city, but there's still a dense concentration of conifer trees. When you have that fire, which again came from the Northeast and was fueled or pushed by strong winds that came into paradise and had the same effect, except the wind wasn't necessarily moving that fire house to house. It was just burning through the conifer trees that were present. And you had a situation where those trees were the fuel and they ignited the structures that were again in that community. And just by virtue of the fact that you have a fire that is that intense moving that quickly, in both cases, it was a diff they were difficult fires to suppress. Mm -hmm. It was hard to catch up to the fire and, and deploy the, the needed responders in time to minimize the impact. So even though you had two completely different situations in terms of fuels and locations, uh, they both had the common characteristic of being pushed by a strong, strong winds, and they moved so quickly, it was difficult, again, for the responders to do much to deter them before they overran those communities. Yeah, it's so interesting, because I think, I think historically, people think forest fires happen in the forest. And what we really saw was 2017 in Santa Rosa is, was, as you mentioned, that urban conflagration and it being just an urban disaster. 
And really, it's just the winds. The winds are really what's driven these these fires to just continue to push into these communities so quickly. And so that 2017, 2018, the story really was all about California. Uh, but as you mentioned a little earlier, I think the story this year, not to downplay what's happened in California, because yes, there's been a lot of devastating and, and damaging fires in California as well. But the thing that was really newsworthy this year is that Oregon and Colorado were dominating the headlines. Is this risk in Oregon and Colorado? Is this expected or was it some anomaly this year? Well, it's interesting you you phrase it like that because certainly the expectation may not be there every year that these areas are going to experience you know the, the extreme risk that we often see in California. But looking at it from the perspective of science, looking at it from the perspective of trying to model out this information and make a determination of where the risk actually is located in the U.S., we see that states like Oregon and Colorado aren't surprising at all. They certainly have a tremendous number of properties at risk. Now, it may not you know, match the California standard, but again, we're talking about tens of thousands of homes, single-family residences that are in high-risk areas in both of those states. Now, every year we actually do a calculation, we do some analysis to make a determination of how much, how many homes are at risk in all each of the states that we analyze in, in the Western U.S. We focus on 13 Western states, and those 13 uh, are, are really the important ones in, in terms of wildfire because they are the occurrences of about 90% of the wildfire acreage that burns, burns in those 13 states. And it really accounts for about 90%, 98% of the properties that are damaged or destroyed. So we're really focused in on where the wildfires are occurring. So to get back to these other states, Oregon and Colorado typically are going to be in the top four of states in terms of properties that are at threat from wildfire damage every year. So it really isn't a surprise when we start to look at how those numbers break down. And in fact, we could go as far as saying that there are seven of the 13 in the Western U.S. that have more than 80,000 single-family homes at risk from at elevated risk wow. of wildfire. So again, when these when these occurrences happen outside of California, not necessarily a surprise, and that's part of the message that we like to get across with our data, especially to insurers and, and to mortgage holders, mortgage lenders, is that we want this information to be useful to them. We want them to understand where the risk is located. And being able to do that on a parcel level basis really mm -hmm. enables us to take a, a more micro view of where wildfire risk can affect properties. Yeah. And, I, and as you say that, I one of the things that we often say is low risk doesn't mean no risk. And I think that that's often a common misconception that people think, oh, my risk is low. I don't have a risk here at all. Where in fact, there are many areas I'm thinking in, you know, the the Santa Rosa area with the Tubbs fire in 2017, that there were areas that people thought would never burn, but they still did have some level of risk. And, and we really saw that risk come to life with them when the fires do impact. Most definitely. It's not a binary process by looking at either risk or no risk. There's absolutely a, a, a graduated level of risk in between the high and the low. Yeah. So, 
to finish off today, um, if we look at, if we had a crystal ball and we look at what's coming for wildfire activity in the, in the coming years, do we anticipate the fire season to progressively get longer and become more devastating? I, I live in the Bay Area. Should I be putting a moat around my house? Like what's the best way for people to protect themselves? Do we, do we feel like this is going to get worse? Well, that's always the most difficult question. The old crystal ball question is really the most difficult. It, it, it's easy to say what happened in the past. It's easy to almost as easy to say what's happening now. But looking ahead is, is difficult. But with that said, you know, I, I can say that I think it's probably unlikely that moats are going to be part of the solution <laughs> moving forward. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we're going to be seeing fewer fires or mm -hmm. less severe fires. I think the most the most obvious thing is that unless there are some dramatic changes occurring and there's no reason to believe they're going to be, I think in the near, near term, we're probably going to see more of the same. It's going to be a continuation of these extreme events. We have the same type of, you know, potentially large destructive fires that can occur because it's going to be the fuel and the condition of the fuel. And, that, and that's not going to be changing. The weather patterns aren't necessarily going to be changing dramatically enough to cause a decline in these fires. And certainly with the human uh, aspect of ignitions, irrespective of the lightning ignitions, right. uh, there's always going to be a, a certain number of fires that occur every year. Now that's kind of on the bad side of the, of the news spectrum. I, I can't leave it at that, however. I think there you really have to start to look at what is the potential for the good news. And I think that we do have some potential for good news in terms of the, the level of you know, threat or risk to properties. I think, you know, maybe current mitigation, and the term mitigation here is referring to what people can do to hopefully uh, reduce the risk on their property. And, and again, moats are not probably going to be part of that conversation, at least not in the near term. But if we look at what IBHS, the Institute of Business and Home Safety, what they're promoting in terms of mitigation standards and policies and practices, state and local governments are doing the same thing. So people that live in wildfire prone areas have a lot access to a lot of information about mitigation. And what that really means is there are things that homeowners, landowners, business owners can do proactively to reduce that opportunity for that fire to move onto your property and damage damage uh, the, the buildings on that property, whether it be homes or businesses. And it's very important, I think, to understand that. Of course, the first step is knowing that you are have, you do have the potential or are at threat, are in an area that is likely to cause wildfires that could be destructive to your property. And so I think we contribute to part of that equation, but it's certainly the people that are promoting mitigation are doing all they can to help. Once you know that you have a property that is in a location that's at risk, uh, then you can undertake steps to do what you have to, to reduce that risk. Yeah. One of our tag phrases here at CoreLogic is know your risk, accelerate your recovery. And I think that that just is the number one thing that you can do to prepare for an event. I think with all natural hazards, understanding what your risk is to those natural hazards is the first step to becoming prepared. And um, as you mentioned, there's a number of things that homeowners can do uh, or businesses to help mitigate their home and protect themselves from if a fire were to strike. So 
you can't prevent the natural catastrophe from occurring, but you can prevent the financial catastrophe from happening. So, Tom, this has been very educational. Thank you. And you've certainly given us a lot to think about when we think about having access to the intelligence necessary to really know your risk to help accelerate your recovery. So thank you for joining me today for Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. Well, thank you, Mayclair. Uh, happy to do so. Happy to contribute. So for more information and insights on natural hazard events, both active events and ongoing research into past events, please visit us at hazardhq.com. And for information on the property market and the housing economy, please visit corelogic.com insights. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode looking at the impacts of the 2020 wildfire season. Thank you for listening, and please remember to leave us a review, let us know your thoughts, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified when new episodes are released. Tune in next time for another Core Conversation.